This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Grips. For comfort, durability, and grip diameter options, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. For chains, sprockets, handlebars and lots of other parts for your bike, check out renthal.com. On today's podcast, myself, Steve English and Gordon Ritchie are going to be looking back at Imola and uh, World SBK's return to the Italian track for the first time in four years. And Gordo, the two of us love going to Imola. I don't think we loved it quite as much this year as usual. 39 degrees, walking up and down the paddock trying to get to one one thing or the other really was a bit of a struggle this week this was this was Imola but not like what we've had it in the recent past where we, we were always there you know the last week of April the first week of May this was the height of the Italian summer and right in the middle of this heat wave that's going through Italy yeah it was very unpleasant working environment in terms of the the, the temperature and the humidity particularly the humidity um otherwise it was a like, fantastic to be back what a track you know it's just a brilliant place to be. Um, and uh, you know you do have to do all the walking at Imola because of the nature of the racetrack it's all hemmed in by a river at the back and a public park at one side and all that so you end up having to walk up and down wherever you're going to see it's a long walk and a long walk back and every time you you just had to get out the the heat you know you could do it for a while and then you just had to go into a hospitality into a garage back to the media centres like and just chill down for a bit have a drink and, and so on but Punishing event, but fantastic to be there. I mean, the epicenter of Italian motorsport for me. For me, Gordo, this this is always one of those special events because it's a really narrow, long paddock. So to get anywhere, you have to talk to everyone. And Saturday night, we had the Promethean dinner and walking up through the paddock, I just bumped into about 15 people that I needed to talk to on the way to that dinner. So it's a great place for that kind of just bump into everyone over the course of a race weekend. Yeah, Jonathan Ray, I think, described it as intimate. The paddock at Imola is intimate. And he's absolutely right. You cannot walk past people. It's impossible. Because the space to, to traverse the whole thing is really only, what, 15 metres wide? And that's it. And you walk past everybody. They're, they're all going past in a scooter or whatever. You could just stand there all day and get 10 stories. It was great. It's a great place. It's old school. And it's pro- and some of that's not great. But most of it is fantastic. It was a fancy dinner on Saturday night as well, Gordo. It's a, a little bit different than the usual deadline hitting Saturday evening whenever you get to have a sit-down meal like that. Yeah, it was, um, again, the, the previous organisers were quite fond of doing things like that. Um, so it was nice that the one of the sponsors of the, in the new era decided to have an outdoor uh, in front of the paddock show with someone doing some art installation on the, the stage. Oh, uh, they like to put on a bit of a show. Um, and it was fantastic and, and I got to speak to the boss I had sat and had to talk to Paul Denning for a while who was at my same table um, I spoke to the, the guy who runs Prometheon and found out a bit more about them but most importantly his love of motorbikes for years strangely his company now sponsors a motorbike racing series I, I can't think why but he was telling me all his Imola experiences and going to Monza as a child and all that you know um, so it was no it was pretty it's, when you go to Italy for a race and especially since all the COVID restrictions have been lifted. You're, you're immersed. I, I always describe the, the Italian races as an immersive experience. And it is every minute of every day. You know, you wake up in the morning, you couldn't be anywhere else but Italy. You know, when you drive out at night, you know, you go to buy an ice cream and it's the best ice cream you've had. You get a pizza, it's the best pizza you're going to eat all year. You know, 
and that's just the one aspect of it. You know, it's just the, the whole atmosphere and everything. And the setting. I mean, we've got Aberdeer and Wales and used to have um, a racetrack in Kirkcaldy's public park, Beveridge Park. But it is genuinely inside a public park. I mean, or a part of the public park is inside the, the, the track. Private houses there, you know, by the side of the track, restaurants inside the track that have got nothing to do with the paddock, but they're just inside the bounds of the racetrack. It's an amazing place. If you if you have to go to one race and you get the chance, and we may not, which might be another part of the story, we may not get another chance. Um, is a good one. Imola's a good one. There's so much history, good and bad, but... All motorsports history is there. Yeah, and I have to say, it's a great track as well. It generates an awful oh. lot of excitement just from the layout from it. And we saw that Gordo with Top Rack, especially this weekend, whenever he was up against Bautista, race one trying to battle with him, the Super Bowl race, and then obviously Alvaro had his crash in race two. But the layout for the track means that you can stay in front of someone, you can defend even if they've got you know the run on you at certain parts of the track like we saw from Alvaro. But for Top Rack, he could just try and put his bike in the right place to keep him at bay for as long as he could. And we had some great racing this weekend. Yeah, we did. Um, the first race was not the... It was great at the beginning, and then it settled down into the kind of predictable outcome. Obviously, what happened on Sunday was very unpredictable. Um, and you saw how battling Top Rack can be. That's what, you know, that was his mojo. If He, ever, he, he talks like, you know slightly depressive this year about his chances and how fast the other bike is and all that but I mean seriously on Sunday it was just something else it was amazing and obviously Alvaro was out the second race but that was vintage top rack and a double you know he won two races would anybody thought would any, anybody else this year except Batista would have won a double what did you what did you think of top rack over the course of the weekend Gordo because this was a really important track we knew that Alvaro was going to come there and it was going to be one of the tracks that would probably lend itself to some other bikes a little bit more than the Ducati. That's where I thought it was really important in race one to see Alvaro have a massive moment coming up the hill out of Aqua Minerale and then immediately attack Ray and come straight back past him. He was motivated to prove what he was going to be able to do. And then when we went into the Super Pole race, Top Rack, he had the pole position already from, from the Super Pole session, but then we go into the Super Pole race and he wanted to give everything he had to win that race against Bautista. It was a great battle all the way through the 10 laps. Bautista still isn't a great fan of Imola, even though he won the first race by some distance. Um, and that showed in the, the, the second race. You know, there was someone there that could just beat him straight toe-to-toe. And he did have a slip-up, and it was an important weekend for a, for um, top rack. I think the fact that Bautista was out would have piled on any normal rider more pressure to perform. But top rack being top rack, probably just thought that as oh right, okay. The guy that's most difficult he beats out, well, I'll just go and win the race. You know, whereas other people might have thought, oh, kinda of froze up a bit. I mean, top rack just went, did it? Thought as well, Goro, in the Super Bowl race, obviously Top Rack had his problem with the bike. He was running pretty limited electronics at one yeah. stage in the race. So for him to be able to do that against Alvaro, even more impressive. The gap's now down to seventy points. It's obviously still Bautista's to lose at this stage. But this at least leaves a little bit of a chink in the armour with five rounds to go. Just to, to finish off the point about Top Rack and the loss of the electronics, as you say, that's the one rider in the field that if you said, here's the bike in your own hands, would maximise that. The electronics are there to help the performance, yes, but for the whole race. So maybe if he had an electronics problem for the whole 20, uh, 19 laps of another race 
that would have been too difficult to do for ten laps when it's just rider, you know, and and not as many laps to do. He he was probably able to make the difference more than ninety nine percent of other people because who he is and how he rides. But as you say, the 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 opening up seventy points is a big difference from what it was before, what it potentially could have been. And people, are, I'm not thinking twenty nineteen again, but that's how twenty nineteen started. The slide started, if you like, in Imola. You know, um, I don't see that happening again. But at least if it makes the championship itself more engaging for people, then what happened the weekend is unfortunate for Alvaro, but it's good for the championship. I think it's one of those situations, Gordo, where you wouldn't really class it the same as what we had in 2019 for Bautista. But what's interesting is we go from here to Most and then Magni Core, two of Top Rack's favourite tracks, two tracks where he goes really well. And that's going to breed that bit of extra confidence for him as well going forward. Yeah, if we can see the rest of the season playing out whereby Top Rack is not letting Bautista go any further and beating him in a semi-regular basis, then we've got a lot of engagement back in the championship again. And these two rounds, the next two rounds, as you say, are very, very good races for Top Rack. Um, you know, there's a big points advantage. Okay, fine. But if we see great racing from now to the end of the year, that's all people want. People are watching. We assume Batista's going to be champion now unless anything stupid happens. So what do we, what, what's going to make people want to watch a Saturday-Sunday? A fight. So if we can get those two guys, even if it's only those two guys fighting it out in the next few races, and Alvaro just saying, OK, I've got a gap, I'll occasionally seed ground, which he hasn't done until this weekend. You know, he, he, he came into Imola already speaking about maybe this is a race to start thinking management of the championship and so on. Well... That didn't quite work out for him on the Sunday, you know. So now he's back. He's going to have to go back into trying to win mode to to keep that gap. Yeah, because for me, Gordon, it's, it's it's about going to Moss next two one one for Top Rack there last year. He's got a lot of confidence, but seventy points. It's still very much Bautista's championship at this stage. But what did Alvaro have to say on on Sunday evening? I was still on air when he was talking to the media. Uh, he said that it was just a mistake he made. It was, it's his fault. He was sorry. You know, um, it was just one of those things. He touched the white line on the inside of the corner, which has obviously not got quite the same adhesion as the asphalt. Um, and that's what Toprak thought. You know, he said he, he obviously touched the white line to crash there. And that's what he can, that's what Batista confirmed, that he just touched the white line uh, on the inside of the corner while he leaned over. Obviously, that's enough to just lose the front on him. Um, and it was just a little mistake, maybe a bit too eager to not let people go. You know, he wasn't in the lead. He wanted to stay there. He was maybe just pushing it a little bit too far, is what he said. But he, he fessed up to it. You know, it was just a small mistake, and and that's what happens. You know, small margins, as we say in every sport, but in this sport, it's tr- absolutely true. This is one of the key things, Gordon, because Bautista had a crash in, I think it was the morning warm-up session as well. That's right. He had a crash at Donington. He's had a few crashes through the course this year, but the big thing for him is he's always been able to explain the crash. The dad has backed up what he's said to the team. It hasn't been like 2019. That's been the big difference, because yes. in 19, he couldn't explain the crashes. Now he can explain them and he's got the right feedback, the right feeling from the bike. So he should be able to bounce back from it. Let's move it on to Kawasaki and Jonathan Ray because this was Ray's best weekend of the season so far. Two podiums in the feature length races, 3-4-3 for the weekend. But even at one of his better tracks, his best weekend of the season, he was always able to keep an eye on the battles, but he wasn't really able to get into the battle. Yes, it's just it was. he really thought he was on for the Super Bowl race. And that turned out not to be the case. But things are at a situation with him now. 
and the overall setup and the performance of the bike is that when he gets two podiums, it's his best weekend of the year. So that's kind of difficult to to deal with. I've heard people say that oh, Jonathan's lost a bit and everything else. I think the problem is that he's he's riding he's he's overrode last year and crashed a few times. I think he's riding at the maximum he can this year, giving it everything. But the, but the whole package set up relative to everybody else. And that's the important thing to remember. Everybody's going faster this year. According to Kawasaki, also them. So it's all things are relative, but it's relatively harder again this year. And remember, he hasn't been able to use those 500 revs he's theoretically got to make up the balance. When you get the next stage of that, if they get the next stage of that, then he's probably going to have a bike that would let him fight every weekend, properly fight. For wins. Gordo, just about that, can you explain to everyone what Kawasaki mean when they say that they need to upgrade a lot of the internal parts to be able to use that 500 revs? Fundamentally, my understanding of the situation is this, and I'll keep it very simple. The engine they want to run is the one that they brought in 2021, and which was last minute not allowed to be homologated. You remember, they wanted to make a new homologation and the FIM and the powers of B said, that's not enough of a new engine. That's not a new engine, that's just an upgrade. So no new homologation. So they couldn't use that engine. Well, that engine had 500 RPM more, but it also had some slightly different internals that they're not allowed to use because everything's approved and, um, you know, you have to have, there's a set list of things you can do and a lot of standard parts. So they've been given 250 revs earlier in the year because of the difference in performance between the best bike and them. Then they just got, after the previous round at Donington, they got another 250 revs. So in theory, the Kawasaki can rev 500 revs higher. The problem is, for performance reasons, maybe for guaranteed reliability reasons, life of the engine reasons, they then need to upgrade their camshaft and associated parts, whatever that means, springs or whatever maybe. may be. Um, so they need the camshaft system to, to be also included to make a get the, the, the 500 extra revs to actually work properly for the bike because the internal gearbox ratios are limited. There's all sorts of restrictions in the world Superbike now in standard parts that have to be used. So the bottom line is they don't they don't want to use, can't use, will not have a performance benefit until they're allowed to also change the camshaft to match in with when and how long the valve's open to then let the engine sing harder. So that's it. You can allow it to rev. They could over-rev it if they want. But they're not going to produce any more power and they're going to stress the engine more. So that was a simple explanation, by the way. The, the, the detailed explanation might take us a, long, a bit longer, Steve. But that's it. It's fundamentally, they need another stage of concessions to allow them to, to bring that 500 revs to play in a way where it'll actually make a difference. That's it. That um, next uh, checkpoint for the concessions, Gordo, it's after round nine, so it's after Magni Core. And for Kawasaki, they've got a test coming up in Aragon during the summer break. So I think it's the middle of August, the end of August, that there's a few teams are going to test. If that's the case, you'd imagine Kawa will use that test to be able to try whatever engine upgrades that they need. That could mean that for the last three rounds of the year, they can use that as an extended test as well, which would be quite an interesting prospect for them going into next year, considering your test days are limited, all these kind of factors. Yes, um, and that, that would be to get experience of it again, because remember they did a whole winter, um, if, it's the, if it's exactly the same engine they were speaking about, and that's what I've been led to believe, then they've got all those bits sitting somewhere, ready to go, and they have te- they did a whole winter of testing on them, so it would be a case of refreshing and, and, and resetting the bike, and I'm sure when you get 
that much more acceleration and that much more power you'll be changing almost every other setting on the bike to suit the brakes the suspension you'll be entering corners faster so yes you will need to get the whole package to to work around that but yeah I, i guess they've got that engine ready just when you look at Kawasaki, let's look at Jonathan Ray in particular because from Assen onwards, so Assen, Catalonia, Mizano, Donington and Imola, he's pretty much been back on form. Even if it's not for race winning form, he's been, and it's it's quite strange to look at a six-time world champion and think he's been top five all the way from Assen onwards. So, you know, he's back to being competitive again. But the first two rounds really were in such stark contrast to that. It's shown well for the improvements they've made since then. But for Ray... It's still been having a ride right on that limit. The two times where he wasn't in the top five, he crashed out of both races, Aston, and then in the wet in Catalonia. We've seen it the last, I think it's the last three rounds where he's been much more competitive. He's looked like he's been able to, like I said, stay close to that battle. When we go to Most, how do you think Kawasaki can fare there? Well, the thing about Most is there's an awful lot of changes of direction, which plays into the hands of Jonathan Ray as a rider. Um, the Kawasaki is not bad in that in that kind of area. There is no major points of acceleration except coming out the final corner and you're already flying and coming out of that in a reasonable pace. There's not many straights there. There's not many punchy bits of acceleration. The thing that's unfortunate is that even at tracks that are like that, we've already seen Bautista been able to win any. Donington, for example, there's not that many straights at Donington. And they're very short straights, should I say, but it was the acceleration out of the corner. Interestingly, what Batista said about that, and this pertains, believe me, it pertains relevant to Jonathan's situation, is that um, losing the 250 revs, because Ducati lost 250 revs, the difference there, he said, is it slightly reduced their acceleration through the first three gears. It hasn't made as much difference to them on the third three gears. So maybe, if that's true, although Top Rack wasn't believing it, if that's true, then Jonathan has obviously got... That's another thing that Jonathan has to worry about a little bit less maybe one disadvantage it isn't quite as profound so add it to all the corners there's 20 something corners it must it's so busy and all big changes of direction the Kawasaki should go well there and therefore Jonathan should go well there I think one of the things I found really interesting Gordo at Imola was there was an onboard shot at one stage from the top chicane to the end of the lap with Ray and he was chasing down Bautista and you could see it when they came out of the top chicane the Ducati just gets a little bit smaller 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 and then when we came into the last chicane Ray was just an absolute monster to try and get it back and by the time we came back on board he had hadn't lost any ground but he had to work so hard to do it but in those upright braking zones the Kawasaki's working well it's once you're braking on the angle it seems to struggle and then it sacrifices it on the entry and it loses it on the exit you always talk Gordo about the three parts of a corner and if you're sacrificed in one of them it impacts everything else yeah and I think another thing that the Kawasaki is improving but has been a problem so far this year is a corner entry with it via the electronics so forget anything else about setup or suspension or angles or geometries I think the electronics is not perfect when they go into corner entry a lot of electronics there is about controlling corner entry via the back wheel you think it's the front or the you're entering the corner it's all about the front well it's how well the back is behaving that lets you then choose your line properly and your speed properly entering the corner and then the second part the third part so they're that's something that they're still working on but they have actually said that it's a bit better 
Let's uh, finish off about Ray with one last thing, Gordo, and it was a big story being broken by Evo from Speedweek saying that Ray was on the shopping list for Yamaha potentially to replace Top Rack. Yeah, um, I mean, Jonathan's got a contract for next year with Kawasaki, but, you know, so everybody assumed he was not in a play for any other ride. Um, but now we hear that, that you know, maybe he's going to go there. There's rumours that he's going to go there. Um, if he did, there would obviously be consequences in, in several ways. We don't know because it's all confidential inside people's contracts that they don't speak about. But uh, can, the team confirmed to me at the weekend that he is contracted for next year. Um, so that would be very interesting if he does go. Um, and the financial side of it would be, I would imagine, would be pretty significant as well. But if you're Yamaha and you're, do, you're shopping around and the available riders that are guaranteed available are, not many, that are guaranteed available and you know could slot in. Okay, nobody can replace top right, but maybe Jonathan could. That If that's the logic that we're dealing with and, and they're chasing them because they know they need somebody that good to replace them, then it makes perfect sense. But I would imagine there would be, it would cause endless trouble and strife within the contract side of things. For Yamaha, I don't really see anyone that jumps off the page. Morbidelli is not coming from MotoGP, which then probably means there's not going to be too many riders really making that switch next year. Domi Agador has had some really good Super Bowl performances this year, and Asim was a really good weekend for him, but he hasn't been in the top 10 the last two or three rounds in Superbikes. So is he ready to make the step to be the factory rider? Probably not. If you've got Locatelli there, third in the world championship, only seven points ahead of Ray right now. Locke is a really good number two. Is he the guy that you can pin your hopes on for a world championship assault? I, I don't think it's a question mark. I think the answer is at this moment in time for 2014, no. He's just not ready. And and he's really good. We forget Locker because he's such a self-effacing, quiet, under radar, doesn't really like... Sp- he's happy to speak to the media. He's very cooperative with the media. But he doesn't enjoy it. And he's not full of himself saying this. He's a, he's a very, very humble guy from a very hard-working area of northern Italy, which is more northern European than, than Italian. He's not the same as the rest of the Italian riders, Locatelli. Um, but I, at the moment, he's had a factory bike for a while and hasn't won a single race. That's a problem to me. You know, the, 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 and this is the problem other people have got. Well, Alex Lowe's has won two races his whole career. Bassani hasn't won one. Ronaldo hasn't won one for a while. He's, but when he did, he was very good. But we've seen that he, inside the factory team, still hasn't been that way. And he, most importantly, he hasn't been finishing behind Batista and ahead of everybody else. So when you start looking at, the, you know, come off the top three page, there's big gaps for everybody. So I'm not focusing on Locatelli, but that's what we're talking about. And at the moment, you, that's not a championship campaign, unless he surprises us all. But to me, it would be a surprise. And that's not dissing Locker. I think Locker learns more every year. So if he keeps in that direction, then he, will, he, will, he would be and he could be. You know, and if Top Rack takes a while, he'll get used to the BMW. You know, Batista wins this championship this year, is a bit less motivated next year. If Jonathan's still with Kawasaki and it's still not a better bike, then maybe you can start seeing him winning regular races. But to be a world champion, you have to be able to win races. And he's not so far. No disrespect to him. Obviously enough, Gordo, if there was a shake-up in order, one of the riders that could profit from that is Scott Redding. He's not going to be BMW's factory rider next season. That's almost certainly going to be Michael Vandermark alongside Top Rack. And then this could be a, a reason why his announcement, which he said was going to be made on Sunday in Imola, hasn't been, hasn't been made. He might still be trying to hold out for a factory seat next year. And uh, Redding's had 
Another good weekend in Imola. Top 10 all the way through the weekend in Imola and in Donington. Finding a little bit of form, a little bit of confidence with that bike. He loved Imola. I thought it was really interesting to hear what he had to say, what Brad Ray had to say. Ray had a great weekend as well. We'll talk about him in a few moments. But these were two riders that loved the walls being a little bit closer, being a little bit gnarly around the track at Imola. And Reading was top BMW again. It was good to see Loris Baz inside the top 10 all weekend as well. Yes. um, Scott, as we know, was the guy who got closest to Jonathan on that Ducati when when he had the chance um, after 19. And he did very well, but it was obvious it just wasn't quite there. To me, the, going on any other bike than the Ducati, he's had the best factory bike and won a load of races and was competitive and then not. Competitive and then not, but the general trend was high, 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 high. Then you go on a much trickier bike in the BMW and it's it's not, it's been high down, started off a disaster, but it's moving in the right direction. I think if he were to jump on any other factory bike, whether it's a Yamaha, Kawasaki, whatever, then obviously he's the next guy down of behind the three in terms of proven capabilities and race record and recent performance and this and that and the next thing. You know, he's he's the guy you would sign after the top three. So it makes sense, you know. If you can't get one of the top three guys, you could get Reading. And and again, that would be, he would be re-motivated and he's get his mojo back again because obviously he is the kind of guy who feels the results more and most, you know. He has to fight hard the next time to get more, more not motivated to win, but to find what he needs to win within himself. Let's, uh, let's move it on, Gordo, to the other factory, the big factory, Ducati. Again, Imola was one of those weekends where Ducati came out and they said, this is... Coming up on the time we're going to make our announcement, it's looking increasingly likely it's going to be Bulaga on the bike. And Nicola's done a great job in World Supersport. He's not going to rock the boat alongside Bautista. Rinaldi has been a very good number two for Ducati. He's done his job, which is finish best of the rest, finish top five in the World Championship. But at the end of the day, this season's been nothing short of a disaster for Michael. There's been a lot of factors that have gone into it, but... At the end of the day, he's been outperformed by Bassani. He's 50 points behind him in the championship. The reasons for those 50 points get forgotten very quickly. And Rinaldi's looking like he's going to be on the outside looking in on the Aruba seat and then probably placed with another Ducati team, whether that's Go 11 or anyone else. But when we look at that second Ducati seat, it does look like it's Bulaga. Bassani did a good job on Sunday, led the race, finished second, but... It does. It looks like it's a little bit too little, too late for him. Yeah, again, Bassani had to do a, to me had to do a little bit more to guarantee to get the factory seat. If he'd but had more consistent podium finishes and so on, then he could have made a better stake, a better claim for himself inside the Ducati organization. He still rides very hard to get his pace. Top rack in particular was talking about. He said he, he knew that Bassani's tires would go off. He knew Bassani wasn't, even though he was out front, it wasn't going to last. Because of the way he rides, he's burning up his tyres and so on. So maybe that's something that needs to be worked on for Bassani. But I feel for Michael because he's such a tough little guy. He's he's a very individual character. We've spoken about him before. He's come up the hard way, regular working class guy with no motorcycle background whatsoever, um, family-wise and so on. That's very unusual. Um, he's, had the, he's done the hard yards. The trouble is that he's still a bit short of the finishing line. And that's just the reality. And he's had lots of bad luck. You can point to it all. He was heroically riding at the weekend in 30-odd degree heat, nearly 40 degree in some of the races, um, with an ankle that the doctor said you, should be, you shouldn't be walking about without a crutch and that all the time. Um, 
and a big head knock and it was not easy for him at the weekend but over the season I agree with you it's he, he, he hasn't enough to guarantee to be there next year Bulliger as a reward or because he's shown his dominance in that he's dominated that class up to now why not him when Bautista is there guaranteeing 2024 so has got next year to I think learn that's the big that's thing the, with it going yeah that, that's it to me they've already got their, their, their big event guy their proven champion the superstar and budget. Hell, <laughs> I'm sure he's going to get paid more money next year again, which means less money for the next guy. So Bulliger would be perfect. You know, Bulliger will go there with always. If he if things go the way we think they're probably going to go, and he wins the championship, um, although obviously ground was made up to him at the weekend, but he's been the class act this year because the Ducati's a bit better. All of the Ducati guys are taking a jump this year because the rules changed a bit. So he, but he's maximising. You've got to do it the same way like Batista. He might be on the best bike now, but you've also got to do it every weekend. And he's doing it almost every weekend. He's got a ton more wins than anybody else. So if he goes next year, it's fully deserved. And it's a, and Ducati have got the, the breathing space to not have to find, unlike maybe Kawasaki and definitely Yamaha, they're not going to be scrabbling to find a top rider. They've already, have, they've already got one for next year. They can start planning 25 now if they take Bulliger, in my opinion. And the 2025 thing is quite interesting, Gordo, because there's still talk Ian One wants to be back on the grid now that his four-year doping ban is going to expire pretty soon. Obviously, Bassani, in all likelihood, will stay with Moto Corsa, so that's a strong yeah. rider in there. It was just announced at the weekend Mark VDS are going to come into the World Superbike Paddock in conjunction with their Moto2 team. It's going to be a brand new entry, single bike, Ducati for Sam Lowe's. That's going to be a really interesting project to keep an eye on as well. That's underneath all the big headline stuff is actually, and that was a big story at the beginning of the weekend. You know, we all got Zoom calls with Sam and all that. It was so exciting. I'm so excited by that. One, we get to see Alex and Sam in the same paddock for the first time since, somebody said 2009 British Super Sport, something like that, a British Super Stock or something. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. It's amazing how close they are in their lives, literally living next door and all that. It's incredible how close those guys are. Um, even though obviously they're identical twins but their whole lives are totally intermingled but their racing lives have been in different paddocks now we're going to get both of them I mean I don't know about you Steve but I'm going to need some more vitamins next year to keep up with Sam and Alex together you think of the mischief that's going to happen in that paddock with those two together all the time I don't know if I'm ready I don't know if 25 years experience is enough to control two lows in the same time I'll be honest, Gordo, the only thing that's going to control it is making sure that both of them manage to get as much golf in as yeah. possible before the round so that they've got that to focus on rather than beating each other. Wait a minute, so what you're saying is that because they're little infants that you need to tire them out before we have to do something important. I like your thinking, Steve. That's that's good. I like that. I'll be honest, Gordo, there's <laughs> times whenever I think that they think the golfing's more important than the racing. Oh, yeah. But what oh, I'm yeah. interested for, for Gordo is... The last time I remember, and there aren't many times where brothers have raced against each other in World Superbikes. The Czechs did for a couple of seasons. Everything else has always just been a couple of rounds here and there. Your home round is a wild card alongside your full-time brother, basically. And this would be quite an interesting subplot all the way through the season just to see how that develops. But to have a team like VDS come in with the infrastructure that they have... I think it's just really exciting for World Superbikes to have a big team that's won three World Championships at Grand Prix level decide that they want to be part of World Superbikes. That is the best news story we've had in a long time. We've got five important factories 
Suzuki are out of racing in many ways now. Um, I probably have gone over to MotoGP, and fair enough, you can see the, the they've proved that decision was right. Their profile, they've had some good results. Um, you can see why they went. But the team, a MotoGP team coming here, is another thing. It's another layer on the cake to me for next year's excitement. Um, and it does show that the that somebody thinks it's worth doing. The fact the manufacturers think it's worth doing. And if I probably had more budget, they'd probably do it as well. Um, and who knows, they might come back one day. Who knows? But it doesn't matter. I've got five. But that team coming in is another element because we've seen what they can do in the Grand Prix paddock. So, yeah, I'm very excited by that next year. Um, and funnily enough, Sam is still going to, is another British rider because we're going to come to a day someday quite soon where the, all the British riders and World Superbike are all going to be of the same age and leave. Now, Sam's not a kid, but he's coming in with fresh motivation for the last few years of his career rather somebody think or somebody else thinking about them or well, he's been here a long time hasn't done that much we'll get another one or he'll retire or leave so yeah it's filling the ranks of the British riders because Tom Sykes might not come back even though he wants to Chaz is retired you know it's another British rider and Bradley Ray's obviously turned up and, that, and he's a much younger rider so that's good you know but Britain's just an integral part of the world so it might Britain you know but Mark VDS is a whole new thing and I find that really exciting. Well, let's hear from Sam now. I two minutes with him on Sunday morning, just before race, uh, before race two, just to see what he had to say about the switch to World Superbike. Sam Lowe's joining us on the Paddock Pass podcast, and Sam, obviously, the big news this weekend: you're going to make the switch to World Superbikes. Everyone's excited to hear about it, but for you, what was the driving force? Um, obviously, a few factors. The first being that I've been quite a long time now in Moto Two. Um, I don't feel like there's a route for me back to MotoGP, so it's uh, the Moto Two bikes are great and everything. But now I've had it for so long, I want a bit of a change. Um, and and when I won the World Super Sport back in 2013, I always thought that I would come back to this paddock and wanted to ride a superbike. So sort of like few things together. Then with the chance to do it with the the team I'm currently um, was obviously all them together made it sort of a no-brainer for me. Did you ever look back to any of the decisions you made and think that maybe there was? opportunities for MotoGP and they just didn't quite work out? Um, I think it's difficult in it to look back and regret and stuff. I think maybe inside the Aprilia thing I could have tried somehow or, or figured out a way to get a second year there. I think I could have improved. <clears throat> and maybe also rather than going to the Aprilia, maybe joining VDS, which I had the chance to at that moment years later and tried to fight for a championship earlier, maybe I could have gone a different GP. But it's easy after it to say you shouldn't, have, you shouldn't have done that. And, you know, I know that we. I'm still happy with everything I've done, all the things I've achieved in that paddock. It's not quite gone... 100% I wanted, but it's still gone pretty well, and I just felt like it was good timing. Obviously, for coming here, you had the options for other rides, but yeah. the chance to be able to go with VDS, the team you've had a lot of success with, team that you know really well, but for them to actually back you for a project like this. Yeah, it was hard to wait. We just waited until we were already here. But um, the fact to come here with Mark, come team that I felt, that I felt good at the last the last few, to come across at a time mimic. <clears throat> and every- when you look at the Ducati, bonds that bike. Yeah, I think obviously Superbike, there's a lot of great riders, British riders that Ducati, so that's a nice. Yeah, let's see. He's in any class, in any category. Thanks, Sam. Cheers, mate. Gordo, you mentioned Bradley Ray as well, and we'd certainly be remiss not to mention his performance Oof. this weekend. He qualified on the second row of the grid. He came away with a sixth place finish in race two. This was a really positive step for him. His weekend, um, there was a problem in the, the first race. Is why he started off really well and then dropped away. But in the second race, all the stars aligned, and he was allowed to show what he could do without the plagued by any problems or anything else. And they finished sixth. I mean, that's amazing. It's it's a big jump, not just upwards from BSB to World Championship. 
as the same as there is from World Superbike to MotoGP. But the, as I've said before, there's an increasing jump sideways. They are different. You don't have electronics in the UK. The biggest job any rider coming from BSB or any other class that doesn't have a lot of electronics is that you have to ride the bike differently, literally differently. And he missed the first two rounds, remember, because these team aren't doing the flyaways. So that makes it even more remarkable at round seven because for him it's round five, net five. And he finished sixth at Imola. All blind entrances, everything. I mean, it's okay, it's a gnarly British-style track. And that's what he described it as. It's a slightly, it's like a bigger version of, of Oulton Park. Oulton Park only more spread out. Gnarly, constant changes of direction, constant undulation changes. Very difficult, lots of blind entries and all that stuff. Virtually every corner at Imola is blind and really fast. And the walls are, you know, at least appear to be quite close. You know, even if you're not heading straight to them. You know, they're, they're zooming up towards you on the side. It's a pretty daunting. Daunting is a good word to use for him, like. Um, And he just, by race two, he finished in the top six. I mean, that's just a fantastic result. And it shows that's his ability half a season into his first season. Again, exciting. That You should be excited by that. Anybody should be excited by that. And whatever nationality the guy is, you should be excited by that. You know, there's another guy who's come in and finished top six. Not top ten, not top fifteen. Six at a track he's never been at before. Yeah, it was a really impressive weekend for him. We mentioned about BMW as well. Reading and Baz inside the top 10 all the way through the weekend, Gordo. This was a good weekend for BMW. Yeah, well, I mean, relatively, yeah, it wasn't bad. Um, it, they, get, they seem to be getting more consistent, etc. In my opinion, they haven't started, um, if anybody understands what heavenly means. Sorry about that. What What hasn't happened with BMW in the last few years is that it's almost as if they don't start the season 100% ready which seems amazing to me and they've been criticised before about not testing enough a couple of seasons ago in the winter um, so yeah I think they've changed and it's interesting that they have also instigated changes in the background to be ready for next year as well for top right coming in and obviously a shuffle about of the riders so that's all those are all good signs maybe that's already having a difference and I think the bikes just got better this, and we're talking about the bike getting better. We're talking about the setup and the understanding and how you make the tyres last and all those crucial things in racing that are all nitpicky, detaily things done in the pit box after stuff's been done in the on the dyno and 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 testing in the winter and so on. And it seems to be getting better. And all that you know, Loris had a decent weekend, etc. You know, I will say one thing that uh, BMW did a good job the first two rounds of the year with Vandermark, and then. He's been out of action since Assen, so it would have been interesting to see how he would have fared through the season up to now. We're going to get the chance to see Mikey back in action in Most, and he's been hanging around the paddock the last couple of rounds like a bad smell, it has to be said, <laughs> Gordo, because he hasn't, he hasn't been one of those riders that's in the middle of his injury rehab and he's staying away from the paddock. He's been thinking, you know what, my motorhome's here, I'm going to go anyway, and uh, we've seen him around the paddock lots. And it's been good to see Mikey in and around. He's been trying to help the team as much as he can. And he's excited to get back out there and get back into action. Yeah, one of the most frequently seen uh, things in the weekend now is uh, Michael Vandermark cutting about the the, uh, paddocks of World Superbike on the fastest electric scooter in the world. So yeah, he's there, as tall as a mast of a Dutch ship sailing to the East Indies. There he is, he's there all the time. Um, Michael's one of the talents in the championship. We all know that. He's won everything in the way through. Um, he's been incredibly unlucky with injuries and everything else, but nobody should doubt the talent of Michael van der Mark. Um, if he had had a clean run in the last few years, 
we would be talking about him as a guy who might be the next lead factory rider. Um, he was unfortunate and obviously top rack coming into Yamaha, so he left there, he went to BMW, then he had even more bad luck with results, injuries. And so. A clean run for Michael van der Mark in the next couple of years. And he's not a rookie anymore, he's not a kid anymore, he's won races, he's, he's been on podiums. He should be in the flowering of his career now. He should be at peak Michael van der Mark. If it weren't for injuries and so on, he probably would be. So we might even see a stronger overall BMW performance. Scott always likes to say that he doesn't care who his teammate is, but if you had Scott Redding and Michael van der Mark both fit all the time and giving feedback to the team, the whole project would be further ahead in my opinion. Michael not being able to ride the bike and give his feedback, you're getting half the story of the riders who are in the actual factory team. See, I think that's what's going to be interesting next year if it is Toprak and Vandermark and if Phil Marin goes with Toprak and then you've got Marcus already working with Vandermark, you've got what should be two sides of the box really able to work well together and that's going to be something that's going to be exciting for BMWC if that progresses. When we look at you know the good from BMW of getting themselves into the top 10 with two riders this all the way through this weekend we'll finish off with another weekend of woes for Honda they knew this was going to be one of the toughest tracks of the year for them they knew Donington was going to be tough and one top 10 finish Ikerlec won in race two just goes to show how tough that project is right now yes there's a lot of uh, very serious faces in HRC now that's not a surprise because that seems to be the modus operandi whatever level of racing or area of racing HRC takes it seriously it's not jokey time in HRC at any stage but yeah they, they got a lot of changes we've spoken about it before but they had a lot of changes allowed for this the end of last year and the beginning of this year and it hasn't worked they're no further ahead they might be a bit faster like everybody else is a bit faster but they they needed to bridge a gap we're given the super concessions to be able to bridge that gap special treatment if you want to call it that and everybody I think everybody was kind of okay with it because, you know, let's help HRC to, to make a big uh, impact in the championship. Um, and it just hasn't happened. It's, and I don't, and it's definitely not for lack of effort from everybody involved. As we've seen, the huge changes have made to the rules to, to get their bike working better. Um, yeah, on Pirelli's in World Superbike with that level, the Fireblade uh, isn't working. Now, it doesn't mean it can't work. Maybe they need to go in a different direction. Maybe they need to change everything. But they made significant changes in the cycle parts recently. They went away from what they used before in an effort to try and find an edge that other people didn't have. That hasn't worked so far. Um, yeah, it doesn't look good over there now. And it's I find it personally heartbreaking because no one in the world understands how important that is to World Superbike more than me and the regular people who have been there a long time. Because when Honda leaves, you feel woof. It's the vote of non-confidence in something. They've voted confidence in World Superbike, but they're the ones who aren't able to make the most of it, unfortunately. I hope they do, and I hope they do soon, and maybe over the summer. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But I had a chat, actually, Gordo, at the weekend with a World SBK rider, former MotoGP rider, and it was about Honda and just how tough it is to see a manufacturer like Honda, HRC, a brand like HRC, where nobody wants to ride for them in World Superbikes or in MotoGP, it's it's horrible. Never happened before. It's horrible. It's 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 absolutely horrible. Is the only word to describe it. And hopefully, we do get to see some progress for it because we need names like HRC to be successful. There's no point having Honda if they're not able to challenge for race wins. So hopefully, that is what 
the end goal for that project becomes but it's just going to take time Gordo we've ran out of time and uh, the reason I say that is we're obviously flat out Gordo we've got Donington, Imola and Mostel within the same month so you've been a busy boy over the last few days you've been out riding around Scotland what's the plan between now and Most for you? Uh, work, work and more work because I've got loads of things to catch up on um, the the little ride I had the last three days with uh, Ian McPherson and his son in the Highlands of Scotland was sorted out long ago and it's obviously mandatory you, all work and no play makes Gordo a dull boy a duller boy let's say um, and I've, I'm have i absolutely knackered but invigorated by three days of hearing about the Highlands um, and generally amazing weather incredibly there's been rain everywhere and we keep seeming to miss it which is great Um but now it's knuckle down and get everything done. I've got, you know, I still do a couple of books at the end of the year. I need to start really that stuff in earnest, catching up with some of that. Um, I've still got a lot of stuff to do. I've had a break in the programme stuff I do, but now that's having to start in, in serious fashion again. Yeah, I've got a lot of stuff to do before I go from Boston. And the summer break will be my busiest part of the year in terms of sheer, even if I'm not travelling, I will be sitting at this desk bashing away on the computer for most of August, to be honest. So, which is fine when you enjoy your job, it's fine. Gordy, how did the big cow last in the course of your three days? Uh, better than it's looked after. My sadly neglected motorcycle um, was actually fine. It needs a few things doing, um, but yeah, I, we were we were singing on the way back today. You know, I went down the west coast today on the roads, and Ian had to go early to go back and do some work stuff. Um, so I just headed back today on my own, and it was just joyful you know the big bike's going good um you know even with me on it it can sing along when you want it to no we, we had a great time of the trip um it was the best roads some of the best roads in europe are in scotland unfortunately they're usually wet when they're dry like it was for 90 percent of the ride it's there's few better places in the world to ride a motorcycle than scotland because in the very northwest there's no one there it's kind of empty except for the you know except for the nc 500 tourists of which there are many and more camper vans in Scotland now than there have ever been camper vans made in the history of humanity. There are so many camper vans of all kinds doing the NC500, like Scotland's Route 66 thing. Um, it was amazing, but even that didn't put us off. We just did so much a good time. It was cool. And I needed it. I needed to recharge my mental, physical, everything batteries. So the old man is tired, but there's a young man living in his head now because of all that, you know? I'm, I'm back to My energy levels are high. My energy levels are high, mate. I'm looking forward to, to seeing you in Most, in that case, Gordo. And considering just how cheap the Czech Republic is, I'll even buy you dinner whenever we get out to out to Most. It's going to be an action-packed couple of weeks, really, on the Paddock Pass podcast. We've got the World Superbike Show for Most. We've got the British Grand Prix coming up as well. So we're back in action with David, Neil and Adam from Silverstone in a few weeks. We've got a lot of shows coming up in the meantime. And we've got lots of activities planned. So keep an eye on the Paddock Pass Twitter feed at Paddock Pass Pod. And if you want to sign up to support us on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast, we've got a lot of additional shows. At Imola, I recorded an interview with Giorgio Barbier explaining Pirelli's decision to move into the Moto 2 and Moto 3 classes. So myself and David had a wee chat about that. So check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. As ever, Gordo, thanks for joining us on the pod. Absolute pleasure, mate. Love it. And as ever, a big thank you to Renthal Street for sponsoring and supporting the Paddock Pass podcast.